Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Be my victim. Hello, my name is Austin Torres, and welcome to the Would You Die podcast, the show where we talk about our favorite horror monsters and villains. Today, I'm joined by my fellow podcaster and cinephile, host of Films for the Void, my friend Landon DeFever. Hello, Austin. Thank you so much for having me on. It's such a pleasure. I am so excited to have you on. I love listening to your show, and it's kind of weird because I'm used to not talking while listening to your voice, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, that totally makes sense. I, I definitely feel the same. I've had like, I've been on the receiving end of podcast hosts of stuff that I've listened to prior. So I completely understand that it's a weird, it's kind of a weird parallel to draw when you are actually down the barrel of someone's voice that you actively listen to. So I totally get that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm glad you do because it's like, this shouldn't happen. This isn't reality, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But today we're talking about, and I'm about to say this without hyperbole, one of the best horror films of the 2010s, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited, but I have to give everyone a warning, spoiler alert for the rest of the podcast. It's not a movie you want to go in knowing stuff. Like if you haven't seen it, go watch it and then come back. Like this is a movie you don't want to know anything about. Yeah, I would definitely agree, especially since it comes with the pretext of this being within a quote unquote Cloverfield like universe as well. Like it's a film that J.J. Abrams specifically designed. So it would be it was kind of written around the 2008 film that he uh, helped produce and would eventually um, turn into a series of a couple of films after the fact where they kind of relate to the events of the first Cloverfield film. So uh, if you haven't seen the first, it, it's not really necessary to see the first Cloverfield movie to understand what's going on in 10 Cloverfield Lane, but it definitely helps to understand the mythos and the, the idea of the film itself. So yeah, go watch Cloverfield and then go watch 10 Cloverfield Lane and then come back and listen to it because I very much agree. It is definitely one of the best horror films of the 2010s. I'm so excited to just start talking about it. Spoiler alert, by the way, because I'm, uh, as all you listeners already know, I like to go all over the place. So I don't know when a spoiler is <laughs> coming. It's just going to happen. So the spoiler warning is here. Uh, we're going into uncharted mm -hmm. waters after this point. <laughs> or I guess charted. You and I have seen the movie. So <laughs> totally. Exactly. Yeah, we've charted the waters and now we're going to report on. them. <laughs> <laughs> but before we uh, get into that, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about films for the void for a bunch of people, because I'm assuming this is going to be a lot of people's first time hearing your voice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Films for the Void is a podcast that I co-created with my friend Eric Spitz. We met in college in 2012. My major in college was professional and technical writing, which also happened to be his minor. So we had a couple of classes together when we were both in our sophomore level classes or so. And yeah, we really hit it off as a friend, like as friends, we went to a lot of concerts over the years. We have a lot of the same music and movie taste and music and film is something that we both hold in high regard. And he's a great guy and a great friend, one of my best friends, honestly. And yeah, it was something that I had been wanting to do for a long time. I wanted to do some sort of long form creative project, whether it was a YouTube channel or a, or like a podcast or something. And I just ended up landing on a on podcast after trying a few different things and 
yeah, Eric was very down to do it with me. And now we've been going strong for about a year and a half now at this point. I think in August, it will be that it will be a year and a half officially. Yeah, we uh, essentially the podcast is set up where every two weeks, Eric and I get together. We talk about things that we've been up to lately. We talk about new movies that we've seen, typically ones that we've seen in theaters. When we first started the podcast out, it used to just be talk about whatever we'd seen recently, but we ended up deciding, you know, it would probably be a better decision if we just talked about new releases. And I, I'm constantly always seeing every new thing that comes out anyway, for the most part. So it just kind of worked out that that it worked out anyway. So we kind of updated the format. And then for the second half of the episode, uh, Eric and I go back and forth between picking a main topic movie, whether and it can be anything and anything, everything and anything, essentially for us to pick through. We've talked about everything from we just we just put out an episode about uh, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. We've talked about everything from funny games to hereditary to Max Keeble's big move to brain dead to. Oh, gosh, what else even uh, children of men saw? Oh, gosh, um, there's a lot in between. And I know I just picks. <laughs> yeah, I actually it just it just kind of worked out that I picked all of the horror movies that we've talked about for the most part, aside from Max <laughs> Keeble's big move, which again, yeah, is the- just a good movie. The exception that proves the rule. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, that's kind of the, just an outline of the show in general. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And something uh, too recently, uh, I had still had like kind of a podcast itch in between those episodes when Eric and I were recording. So on the off weeks where we don't put out new episodes, I've started interviewing friends that have creative pursuits or creative projects that I want to have them on and talk about um, anyone from musicians, bands, authors, podcasters, um, graphic designers, just pe- TikTokers, just people doing cool things with their lives. And I just want to talk to them about them. And a lot of them have been my friends. And uh, we've been having like some more high profile guests like uh, Mike Zemer, who's the founder of So What Music Festival in in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I just interviewed the band Glimmers from Atlanta, Georgia. And I have an interview coming up next week, actually, with the band Camp Trash from Orlando, Florida. So I'm very excited to keep building upon that a little bit. That's awesome. And I love that you interview, it seems to be a lot of musicians, which Mm -hmm. I love listening to because um, we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, but we're both musicians. Oh yeah. What do you play? I actually play guitar. Oh, right. Well, I I don't, I'm about to brag right now, but please do. I I played trumpet for a pretty big band back in the day. Oh, what band is that? The Spartan marching band at Michigan State. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. I didn't even, I didn't know you went to Michigan State. That's so cool. I, I love telling people it's a pretty big band because they think like, ooh, rock band. I, I mean, no, it's That's literally like, oh, big. Awesome. Played unless people. they Jake or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> know. I was in the, I was in the Spartan band and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cool. Um, Yeah. As someone that lives not 20 minutes away from Michigan State University, that's cool that we already have like such a unique connection and just being that close to one another. <laughs> yeah. And the reason why I know about you is because you interviewed one of my friends from high school oh who's that uh poppy who's in the oh, boyfrienders nice. i went to high school with them and they retweeted um your show and i'm like oh a new show for me to listen to and then you saw that i followed and then mm-hmm. we started talking between that so because of poppy we're friends very cool. Yeah, Poppy's a lovely person. I just saw um, their band Boyfrienders at DIY Burning Man and uh, at the Crowfoot and Pontiac finally for the time, and they were awesome. So shout out, Poppy. Yes, Poppy. Shout out. Please come on my show. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I interviewed their sister, Hope. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. That's awesome. 
So I'm like, okay, Poppy, like I got Landon, I got Hope. What are you waiting for? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just waiting for that holy trinity. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned a lot of horror films while talking about your podcast. And obviously we're going to get into 10 Cloverfield Lane, which um, is one of your favorites. But would you consider yourself a horror fan? I definitely would. I It's one of those things in genres where you can go down like, such a huge rabbit hole of what it means to be a horror fan, whether you love everything, you collect everything sort of thing. And in comparison to the most diehard of horror fans, I probably fall by the wayside, but at the same time, I do like and appreciate a lot of horror, uh, whether it's like just franchise sort of stuff or like very psychological intense sort of things, whether it's slow burn or slasher. There, There's a lot from every genre that I really do like. Um, some of my favorites off the top, I really like, um, Ari, I'm a big Ari Aster fan. I really like Hereditary and Midsommar. I think both of those are great. I really love. Oh, gosh. Neil Marshall's The Descent from 2005. I actually just went on my friend's podcast, um, my friend Jeff's podcast, Podcast the 13th, and we talked about that movie. Also really like Titan uh, by Julia DeCorno, as well as uh, um, her other film, Raw. I really love Wes Craven's Scream. I really like Peter Jackson's Brain Dead. Uh, those are some of the big ones that jump out at me. Uh, I also love the Saw franchise for better or worse. I, I recognize that most of those movies are not good, but I have to watch through them every single Halloween for whatever reason. I just find them really fun and interesting. And I, uh, I'm one of those weird people that I think Saw 6 is actually the best one. And depending on who you ask, that might not be such a hot take, but I really love <laughs> that film in particular, as well as the first one too. So you would consider that to be kind of like your horror guilty pleasure franchise i guess i would say so yeah i've kind of dipped into some more of the goofier sort of like horror franchise sequels over the last couple of years uh the last couple of years um part of it was just spawned out of being in quarantine i watched uh in 2020 i watched all of the friday the 13th films for the first time uh and then i watched and then 2021 in preparation for halloween kills i watched all of the halloween films for the first time and uh yeah i i definitely like parts of both of those franchises for sure i can't say i would go all out and say I universally love every single one of them. But at the same time, though, I definitely recognize, okay, there are a couple from each franchise that are legitimately good and have really strong qualities. And there are a couple in each franchise that I really love for the sake of they're so much fun to poke fun at and watch with drunk friends and stuff like that. Like <laughs> I have a really strong, I have a really strong affinity for three of the Friday the 13th films. Uh, Friday the 13th, part three, the one in 3D. Part five, A New Beginning, and Jason X. I think all three of those are objectively not good films, but I would put <laughs> on any of them at any time with a group of friends and laugh. And I think there's entertainment value to be had in just that aspect of it too. So whether or not I love horror films as like legitimately good films, I do think that there are varying levels to which they can be enjoyed. I'm just going to say Jason X is my favorite. Oh, sure, Friday, sure. Yeah. Friday movie. And I will, you know what? I'll die on this hill. It's objectively good. <laughs> and that's fine. Hey, that's totally fine. I uh, I will say this. If I had to put on one of them right now, like at any given moment, I would put on Jason X. It is so excessively, it is so excessively fun and crazy. Yeah. And I've seen, I watched that film for the first time in 2020. And I've seen it, I think three or four times since watching it for the first time that a couple of years ago, I just have come back to it so many times with friends that it's such a blast to watch. So I really do like it, despite it not clicking those like, like film critic, like snobby tendencies that I have. <laughs> Me being a snobby film critic, going to bat for 
Jason X for a second. <laughs> sure, sure. I would argue that Jason X knows exactly what it's doing. Now, I'm not saying I'm not going to try and convince people to like the movie. That's a whole <laughs> different conversation. Mm-hmm. But Jason Jason X has a really unique sense of humor, and all of its choices kind of tonally fit with its weird, campy, off like it's a quirky movie, kind of like I think Jason um, Jason Lives, the Friday Six. Mm-hmm. And Jason X, it, it won't work for everyone, but like it has that kind of like MCU kind of punniness to it. Like when the girl is getting sucked out into space and she just says, this sucks on so many levels. Sure, sure. Yeah, good line. Or the, or the guy that like gets impaled on the giant drill and someone goes, he's screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Like, I, de- I definitely get hints of that in the script. It's just one of those things where, like, everything surrounding the production of that film is so unconvincing that it almost, like, it makes it that much more entertaining for me from, like, even if I'm, like, even if I'm being a snob and, like, an- like pseudo-analyzing it as, like, so- sort of a-, a badly produced film in a lot of ways, I definitely do enjoy the campiness of it. And I do... do- get hints of its own self-awareness a little bit. Even if it just kind of comes down to a couple of like weird puns like that, I definitely do see that embedded within its DNA that it is. It does have some self-awareness that I think does make it more fun to watch than some of the other ones. And I think the crudeness of the production really lends to it feeling like a campy Friday movie because Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but if you're watching a movie with Jason in space, it's not going to feel right if it has a high budget and, you know, it's glossy. It has to have that kind of Friday the 13th low budget feel or else it just doesn't work as a Mm -hmm. Friday movie. I almost would like, I I almost would push back against that just a little bit in the Mm -hmm. sense that um, I actually really like, not, not okay, I won't say I really like this film. (laughs) I actually kind of did vibe with the 2009 Michael Bay produced Friday the 13th, even though that film is so like glossy and like you said, glossy and well-produced and like really, it's from the same director who did the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I actually Mm -hmm. do kind of enjoy watching that film, even though it's like, okay, like I I gave it a five out of 10 on Letterboxd, if that gives you any idea of how I feel on it. But I think what makes that film so much more watchable and accessible is because so much effort is put into making it look like a $30 million movie instead of just a like random, like, oh, we we got together for a weekend and shot a horror movie or something like that. So I, I do... I can see it either way. I can uh, like this like super serious, very malicious, brutal, high gloss 2009 version, or I can look, take this sort of self-aware, weird pseudo like it, Jason in space sort of thing and kind of get enjoyment out of both departments. Oh, I, I feel that for sure. I personally think the Friday reboot is it's top three Friday the 13th. Oh, nice. Okay. Because it is so much better made. I feel like the people making it really love the Friday movies and it's a perfect distillation of what Friday is. Mm-hmm. The only thing it's missing is that do-it-yourself attitude that the other ones have. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, they definitely all feel like they were made over the course of a weekend. Didn't have a lot of time or foot or film to do extra takes a lot of, especially the first one. I like the first, the first one is actually not one of my favorites, admittedly. Like I don't have that same nostalgic connection for it. Like a lot of other people do where it's just where there are part, there are aspects of the first film that I really, the original that I really like. But at the same time, though, like I don't have that sort of wistful attachment that some people do that grew up with this film when they were in high school or something, saw it at a drive in and really loved it. So I'm kind of going into it with this with without rose colored glasses on, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I get that. I love how this (laughs) turned into a Friday the 13th episode. (laughs) <laughs> Honestly, like no, no disrespect to 10 Cloverfield Lane. A little part of me just wants to talk about Jason X right now. <laughs> well, I mean, it's all sci-fi horror. We're still in the same area. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you got to admit, J- um, Uber Jason looks really cool. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Jason X. Uh, I, it's so weird. I feel the same way about Jason X that I do with Rob Zombie's Halloween films in particular is that they did a great job of casting Jason and the actor who plays Jason and Michael Myers in those films because they're absolute units like I like I was like intimidated very heavily by both of them and I'm six foot seven so that's something that doesn't come easily for me like I'm a very (laughs) big tall guy so seeing like someone like Kane Hodder and Jason X or whoever plays um the uh the actor in Halloween 2 by Rob Zombie just absolutely terrifies me to no end. <laughs> I think his name is Tyler Maine. I think you're right. You know, it's funny. I was actually just talking with Jeff about, about that on podcast the 13th. And yeah, I had to look up the name. Thank you for doing the work so I didn't have to. <laughs> I don't know all the Michaels, but I know that one because you're right. He is scary. And as a 5'11 scrawny boy, a lot of people scare me, but still. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I get that for sure. (laughs) Yeah, he uh, 6'9". Oh, my God, that's terrible. That's my God. It's like walking in a Sam's Club and just being surrounded by like 15 foot shelves on either side. It's like, oh, my God, this this is scary. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts on the Rob Zombie Halloween films? I think the first one is pretty good as an origin story. I think it kind of fumbles the bag a little bit and has some weird detours that I think zombie tries to put in and some of them work. Some of them don't. I definitely prefer the, uh, the original Halloween is a classic in my opinion. Like I don't think it's perfect by any means, but it gets the job done as far as like establishing this universe and justifies like making more films after the fact. But um, I really liked Halloween 2 by Rob Zombie. I was really impressed with that film. I was really surprised how legitimately scary it is because I'm not really that easily scared by a lot of horror movies. I can probably name on two hands the number of horror films that have actively worked on me as a film goer. And I don't know what it is. It's just something in my brain that doesn't click where I don't know, like I'm just not, a, it's gotta be something that really, really gets under my skin or there's gotta be some really slow burn tension there, which is, which is why I think Hereditary works so well. But uh, I don't know. I, I was just so moved and affected by that, especially for it being a run-of-the-mill sort of slasher where that's a genre that I'm like really not that affected by in a lot of ways. But I really liked the world building that Rob kind of developed with that. I've only seen it once, but I just remember so many specific story beats and uh, just innovate, just, I don't know, it was just very innovative. And I was really impressed with what he was able to do with a sequel to a film that was based on an existing property. And it still has a lot of, it still has a lot of personality and holds its own. Um, I, it's funny on Letterboxd, I just did a list recently called the Bad Rep List. This is from my friend Corey, where- Oh yeah, I stole this from you. 
Oh, you did that too? Okay, yeah. Then yeah. Um, ha- Halloween <laughs> 2 was the number one film where I had the biggest disagreement with the letterbox community about where I think the average is like a two, three, a two, four, and I gave it a three and a half. And, and it could be, a, it could be a, a four at some point and uh, out of five for reference. And yeah. yeah, I just was very impressed with a lot of it. I could easily go back to it. It's my favorite Halloween film. That isn't the original. I could, I, I could appreciate that. I dig that. I have kind of like a mixed feelings towards the Rob Zombie Halloween films. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that they exist but Rob Zombie movies are usually a bit too much for me, not in terms of like gore, because I can handle gore, but it's like there's almost a nasty mean spirit in this to it sometimes where yeah, I want to take a sour sure. after like Devil's Rejects, I think is a very good film <laughs> and I don't really want to watch it again anytime soon. Mm hmm. I know I will eventually because I'll forget. <laughs> I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's a good movie. And it still will be a good movie. But I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, I'll wait another 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, Rob Zombie definitely prioritizes style and um, cutting to right to the core of why things are scary, which I think is why his films are so unique in that regard. Um, I do agree that sometimes the style goes a little bit overboard. It's like, um, it's like a, it's like ba- if Boz Lerman sometimes did a horror film or something, but at the same time though, I feel like it's, you know what I mean? It, for, yeah. At the same time though, it's, um, it's, it's stuff like that that makes it stand out to me. And I, I feel the same way about the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like remake the Michael Bay one and the 2009 Friday the 13th, where those films are so over the top and intense and mean spiritous and, and just brutal that even if you don't love the experience of watching them, they undoubtedly leave an impact. And I, I'm looking for yeah. like impacts to be left on me when it comes to like horror films. If a, if a horror movie like Hereditary or Titan or The Descent can leave like a huge impact on me, then I, at the end of the day, I consider that to be a really, really strong. Yeah, it's something that I really appreciate. (laughs) I I feel that for sure with Rob Zombie, he's like one of those filmmakers where I will always go see his movie Mm -hmm. because I want to, I want to support Rob Zombie. His style is just really different from my sensibilities. Mm -hmm. And I just, fundamentally disagree with his depiction of Michael Myers other than the casting of Tyler Maine because that's awesome yeah (laughs) but I'm a purist in the Halloween sense it's like Halloween's evil because I'm sorry Michael Myers is evil because he's evil that's the backstory (laughs) he's got the devil's eyes that's all we need to know I don't want like I don't like the idea of making him a tortured kid growing up in poverty and trying to understand Michael Mm-hmm. But that's what excites Rob Zombie. And I'm like, I want to support hit that. Like, as a film goer, I want to support new visions like that, that I necessarily don't dis- like, I don't necessarily agree with. But at the same time, it's unique. And I like I like movies that try to do something different. Definitely. Yeah, I would rather a so a lot of the time when it comes to like newer visions of horror, I would rather see directors taking big swingings and big swings and missing then just kind of play it safe and play by the rules and we just get these like sort of random like see it see it once and you forget about it instantly sort of horror films there I feel like there's like so they're a dime a dozen where you completely forget about them unless they're like so effective like those or they're so bad funny that you can just kind of laugh at and enjoy for that regard and and both I think the the polar extremes of both sides whether it's a one out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 are very 
hard to do, but they're great if you if you pull it off. But that stuff in the middle is just where a lot of a lot of films, in my opinion, lie, whether it's horror or not. So, um, right. yeah, anything that can do that is impressive in my book. <laughs> and I think he's just a great filmmaker, even though I don't necessarily like any of his films. I think a lot of them are really good. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, there's a few that I haven't seen. I've not seen Lords of Salem. I have a couple of friends that like swear by that film and say it's amazing. Uh, I, but I've seen Devil's Rejects and I've seen both Halloweens and uh, all three I've, I've enjoyed quite a bit. I, oh, House of a Thousand Corpses. I also like in parts. I think the first half of that film is a lot more fun than the second half, but I definitely appreciate the vision. And I'm glad he kept pursuing film and pushed towards directing like and doing interesting filmmaking techniques, because I do think he is a necessary voice in horror, whether you like him or not. Right, exactly. And even if like his movies aren't my cup of tea that I want to revisit, I can appreciate them for what they are. And I like having such a unique voice in the horror world. So I'm a Rob Zombie yeah. fan, even though I'm not a Rob Zombie fan, if that makes sense. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And it's, it's so funny because I feel like horror in general is one of those genres where... Um, I feel like fan bases can be so divided over the most like minute things, like the most specific details can ignite these huge debates and arguments where it's so wild to me because like horror in general is not meant to be a genre that is universally loved where everyone's going to love every single aspect of it. It's a very subjective genre where some people love like intense slashers. Some people love slow burn stuff. Some people love sci-fi related things. Some people don't like it's, it goes all over the place. And um, I always find that really interesting. So yeah, with horror or really any genre, I think as long as I've always said to people, like, as long as you can back up why you feel the way you feel about things, I think most opinions are very valid in a lot of ways. I'm not saying they're all valid because they're not, but at the same time though, I think it helps um, to be able to like communicate your issues with a film if it doesn't necessarily speak to you. I'm a very huge proponent of the argument that a person liking or disliking a film isn't the same as thinking a film's good or bad. But I think a majority mm -hmm. of people say, I don't like this film, therefore it's bad. And that's when I put on the verbal boxing gloves. And that's when I'm ready to uh, verbally scrap. <laughs> <laughs> No, you mean because like like art in general is so subjective and even the weirdest strangest things can like be a good reason for something that really that something really stands out to a person like this isn't a horror movie but I actually just for the first time watched um Steve Odeker uh, Kung Pao enter the fist for the first time uh, because oh, cool. like, one of the members of Glimmers brought that up on the podcast that we recorded last night it's a film I've heard so many things about very mixed opinions some people love it some people hate it some people say it's stupid and so other people say that's the point. And I watched it last night and I really liked it a lot. And I can see why someone would be turned by it's like very weird, like sense of humor where they're basically just dubbing over Kung Fu movie, old Kung Fu movies. But at the same time, though, like it's that weird sense of humor that makes it its own. And it goes for broke in such a huge way that I couldn't help but just be charmed by it in a lot of in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So I could see it going either way with for that in particular, too. You want to hear my hot take that kind of proves the point? Please do. <laughs> so don't don't get offended because you said multiple times your appreciation for this film. Okay, here I'm about to alienate my horror fan base. Are you ready? <laughs> Go for it. Hit me with it. I didn't like Hereditary. And that's fine. That's 
It's not, it's not everyone's cup of tea. I completely understand. I watched that for the first time with the, not for the first time, my sister's first time <clears throat> I, I brought it over to her house and showed it to her one night. And she was just so intensely traumatized by quote unquote, the incident in that film that mm-hmm. she was just so not ready for it. And it kind of like, it really just like terrified her. And then the second half, she just really, really hated because it just didn't go in the direction that she was expecting, nor was it the direction that she wanted it to go in. And um, between all that, it just was a terrible time for her watching it. Yeah. But at the same time though, like she saw Midsommar and loved it so much. And she had this really visceral reaction to that film and really enjoyed it. And that she wants to come back to Hereditary because she thinks now that she knows what she's expecting, she might be able to get a better experience out of it. No, that that is absolutely a film that I could see someone loving or someone hating. It's it's definitely, um, especially in in film, like art house communities, like it's very widely appreciated. And if you talk to the right person, you're going to find someone that loves it. But if you're talking to other specific people that don't like it, then you're going to get a completely different answer. What don't you like about it? If you don't want me asking. Oh, no, for sure. Um, I'd have to say, I think it's one of the best horror films of the 2010s. In addition mm-hmm. to 10 Cloverfield Lane, mm-hmm. I have no, tr- I have no objective criticisms with it i think it's one hell of a debut i think the tone is just is it's just so full of dread and Mm -hmm. it's an uncomfortable watch and i have so many compliments for it but the reason why i don't like it it's it's funny because you you said your sister had that bad experience with it yeah i brought the blue i brought the blu-ray over to her house and we watched it one night i saw this in theaters by myself okay i was I was loving it until I think the third act. Interesting. Okay. And when, when the supernatural stuff starts to like really get going, usually the part I love, that's where it just kind of loses me Mm -hmm. because the film does a really good job making you think it could go either way. Right. Mm -hmm. But then it just got to a point where I was just predicting everything that happens and being right. And normally that doesn't bother me. I love watching Marvel films. So predictability is not. <laughs> it's not a deterrent. I complain about. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a deterrent. It doesn't turn you off from it being able to enjoy something. Yeah. But this is an A24 art horror film. Mm-hmm. And I expect to be, you know, taken for a more intellectual ride. And this film's a very intellectual ride that i think um does a really good job exploring grief and trauma and dysfunctional family like i said i think it's a really really great film but me personally watching that film in the theater by myself i'm just like come on movie you were doing such a good job being different now it feels like just a bit more intense conjuring or insidious you know hmm interesting um, yeah, like it, I like the part where she beheads herself with the piano wire. Hereditary spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think what really got me to dislike the film was the whole monologue explaining everything at the end. Mm-hmm. Because when I first saw the movie, my pretentious film goer brain was like, oh, you think you're better than me that you have to spell it out for me? I, well, I was paying attention movie. 
And that's why I don't like it. <laughs> that's I can see where you're coming from with that for sure. Um, yeah, I definitely think the film loses its way in the third act. I still really, really like it a lot. And I, I actually yeah. did kind of appreciate the uh, the ex the explanation a little bit in the sense that it helped me kind of piece it together a little bit better along the way on my second, third, fourth watches later in the fact. Mm -hmm. I also did not see this in theaters. I kind of purposely avoided seeing it in theaters because I wanted to go in as blind as possible. I didn't want to know anything about it because I know a lot of A24 horror movies specifically always attract these like weird crowds that of like normies that just kind of text through movies and don't pay attention and talk. And I yeah. didn't want to have an experience. I didn't want to risk having an experience like that. So I just purposely avoided it. And I just went, I rented it when it was finally out and I didn't know anything about it. So it made it all the more impactful. And I think the first two thirds buy it so much goodwill that I don't even mind that it's a little on the nose in the last third. But at the same time, though, I did kind of appreciate the explanation because I think it helps me piece it together on subsequent watches. There are a little thing. There are a lot of little things that I picked up along the way that I find really, really interesting that I'm like, I actually like this more than I did the first time. And I, I've seen that movie. I think three or four times since 2018 when I first watched it. And uh, yeah, I still really, really love it. I actually just ranked my 50 favorite films on Letterboxd uh, today, actually. And oh, that nice. was my highest rank. That was my highest ranking horror movie, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Like I said, I think it's a fantastic film. It just mm -hmm. does a bunch of little things that rub me the wrong way. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> but those aren't like they're not real criticisms. They're a personal taste. And totally, yeah. I like using hereditary being like, I can think this is very good and not like it. Definitely, yeah. No, I have always been a big believer of there is a big difference between thinking a film is great and really well made and it and having it be something that you like literally really enjoy. There are a yeah. lot of like be heavily beloved films that I think are really, really terrific in a lot of regards, but they're not films that I would want to come back to. Like uh, uh, they're one and dones where I'm like, okay, I recognize this is very well made. It's great. It just didn't click for me on an emotional level. I have no desire to own it. I'm glad I saw it for the sake of seeing it. I'll never watch it again, but I can recognize that there's a difference between having regard for a film and loving it to pieces and wanting to watch it over and over and over again. Exactly. And uh, for a film that I think is one of the best made of the past decades and it's of the past decade and it's one of my favorite films, I could watch it over and over again. I think it's time to move to 10 Cloverfield Lane. <laughs> nice transition. I love it. <laughs> Well, I was thinking I could either go that route or I could go with the route of acting because we go from Oscar snub Tony Collette to Oscar snub John Goodman. I, yeah, I will die either on way. Both I those mean, hills. <laughs> heavily agree with both of them, actually. <laughs> but yeah, 10 Cloverfield Lane is like, I got to out myself for a second with 10 Cloverfield Lane. Mm -hmm. I think it might be the movie I regret not seeing in theaters the most. Oh, yeah. I think I, I went on a date to see that movie in, I think it was in Bay City with my girlfriend at the time. And yeah, we both really liked it a lot. We both saw it in theaters with, I don't think we, there was even like anyone, in, hardly anyone in the theater when we saw it, I, if I remember right. But I, yeah, I had a blast seeing it. I only saw it once in theaters, but I had a really great time. I, I remember like one of my first thoughts when I finished it the first time, I was like, now, why didn't I go see that in the, why did I skip this movie? <laughs> Why do you think that is? What made you not want to see it? Well, well, what made it? What made you not want to prioritize it? Honestly, I think I was just kind of busy and I forgot about it. <laughs> yep. Because I remember and, uh, for a film the, that sorry. was not very happy. 
No, I was gonna say for a film that was not very heavily advertised in general, I, I feel because I feel like the the rollout for that film was maybe a couple of months where I think with most films, they give you like four or five months of leeway with like promotional stuff. And they try to like hype up, get you get the hype building. Some films have their own like self-created hype trains through fan bases like Marvel films or something. But uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, I remember being really surprised. Like, wow, this is coming out in like two months. Like, holy, how are they going to do this? Like that feels like not enough time. But uh, and I'm curious. I don't even remember if film did really well at the box office or not. But yeah. Well, I'm part of the reason if it didn't, but um, <laughs> well, I remember I specifically remember seeing the commercial during I think it was the Super Bowl. Yep, you're right. And I remember seeing it and being like, oh, John Goodman's in this. I need to see this. And then I didn't. And then mm -hmm. I saw it on like the Blu-ray aisle one day and I was like, oh, I missed this. Oops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like, I don't know. I wanted to see it and then I didn't. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just a little uh, heads up. I went on Wikipedia. The film cost about $15 million to make and it grossed $110 million. So it was a box office hit. It made money. For Good. Sure. I mean, they they made another movie after that. So the um, oh, Paradox, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Piece of shit. <laughs> I, I didn't see it. It was one of those things where it's like, oh, a new Cloverfield movie. I'll check it out. And then I didn't. <laughs> That, I guess Talk it happens a lot. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, what a disaster of a movie that was. I've only seen it once and I'm never going to watch it again. If you want to talk about a movie that, by comparison, made $15 million. Well, um, 10 Cloverfield Lane made for $15 million, raised $110 worldwide. This cost $50 million because there the movie was already in production at the time when Cloverfield Paradox was being made. It was originally called this, this movie called The God Particle. And I guess J.J. Mm -hmm. Abrams just adapt, like took the rights from it and adapted it like it was a spec script and then adapted it to make it into the Cloverfield universe. And essentially, it yeah, it just was a giant, giant. It just like I mean, they dumped it on Netflix, if that gives you any idea. Like there's so many <laughs> I feel like there's so many films on on Netflix in general that they just kind of pick up for the sake of, oh, this will this will get people to watch it. They are that they buy movies because people will watch them, not because necessarily that they're good. <laughs> Honestly, I feel that a lot of times it works on me. Like I'll just go in the horror section of Netflix or Prime or Hulu or whatever, or I'll just put on Shutter. I'll be like, huh, killer yep. lion. Right up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's a true story. I was on Shutter. I found a, I think it was a Dutch film about a killer lion. And it was awesome. <laughs> was it rad? I loved it. Um, it, I would say it was pretty rad. I don't know what the film was called, though. Was it Roar by any chance? Maybe. It's that Okay, so yeah. Roar is a different type of movie from the 70s. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it or not. It's a film where uh, it, this wasn't a this? 70s film that I saw. Oh, OK, yeah. OK, gotcha. Yeah. Roar is com a completely different thing. It's like an exploitation film where it's about this family of like lion tamers in Africa. And it's like a it's like a giant family of adults, essentially. And the production of this movie was plagued with a lot of issues and injuries because they used real lions and didn't have any like professional trainers on there. And uh, a couple of a, a few of the actors got like serious injuries. And uh, I'm not sure if anyone died, but 
there were um i know um the star of that movie faye dunaway had to get like severe reconstructive surgery after a lion mauled her or something and uh jan oh. debont the film cinematographer um got scalped during filming and had to oh. get like had to get his head stitched up with like a hundred stitches it's nuts it, the movie itself is very very wild and gonzo and i would recommend it because it's such a crazy movie but it's it's more interesting as a spectacle than it is a movie. But yeah, that again, a tangent. But anyway, <laughs> you said Faye Dunaway. I think Faye Dunaway, if I'm not mistaken, I can look that up really quick. She's a huge star. She is. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I don't oh, want nope. anyone to. Be... Excuse me. Melanie Griffith. That's what I meant to say. OK, Melanie Griffith is still pretty famous, but not Faye Dunaway. I mean, no one should be attacked by a lion but i'm like <laughs> yeah <laughs> faye dunn what career choice did faye dunaway make oh yeah uh, okay um, yeah it's um, a wild wild movie i would recommend it just for how insane the whole thing is more than anything <laughs> cool so i searched i searched dutch lion movie we're, we're supposed to be talking about um <laughs> ten cloverfield lane but here i am looking up dutch lion movies we'll get to it we'll get to it <laughs> And it has multiple titles. So it's called either Prey or Uncaged. Okay. Depending on where you look at it. And I think when I saw it, it was called Uncaged. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But yeah, it's like a fun creature feature that you put on that you can put on to, you know, laugh at with your friends. Okay. Yep. I found it on Letterboxd. Yeah. This, that, this definitely looks interesting for sure. I, that, that, uh, Oh my god, that average on Letterbox 2.3. That's like right in, that's right up my alley for something yeah. like this. And there's this there's this twist in it that's so predictable and they telegraph it so hard. Yet when it happens, it's just so satisfying. Oh yeah. Like you see it coming 30 minutes prior, but when it happens, you're still just like, yes. <laughs> that's so good. But back to 10 Cloverfield Lane which has mm -hmm. no lions in it, unfortunately. I know, it's a um, shame. Has aliens, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. John Goodman is really fucking scary. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, it's so weird because he goes so against type in this film that you forget that um, from his days and being in Coen Brothers films that he actually can be a very intimidating presence, especially for people like you and I that grew up with his very nice guy routine in films like Emperor's New Groove and Monsters, Inc. and stuff like that, that we kind of forget that he can dive into that like very menacing, very uncomfortable sort of vocal presence that he provides in that film. And yeah, it's really, really terrific in that. He's really great in that film. And because um, really he is the only villain in this film, like aside from like the world's, the circumstances of the world, if you want to call that a villain or the aliens. Right. But really, this is a this is a person v person film in the sense that John Goodman is keeping them hostage, essentially these two hostage. Well, I guess Mary Elizabeth Winstead hostage more than anything in this place, but really it, he thinks he's doing something good until it's slowly revealed throughout the course of the film. Again, spoilers that uh, it seems like he is, well, he's like a very domineering and controlling person, which it, it seems like why his, he claims that his family left him, his wife and daughter where later we learn in the film that it seems like that she was also being held hostage at this house by him. And that's when they real that Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character realized that they have to get out of this house sort of thing. It's not, 
if they would rather take their chances outside and in the real world than with this crazy guy that thinks he's doing a good thing by keeping them essentially hostage with all this food in here because he just knew about this and knew it was coming. Right. And there's an amazing, I think it's a monologue that John Goodman has, but basically you could distill it to a line and it's, no, crazy is building the arc after the flood comes. Oh, yeah. It's such an interesting insight into this very complex horror character. It's basically the sub- it's a subversion of Dan Connor, like the good, mm-hmm. the good. All I want him to be my dad, all American, you know, Midwest uh, sitcom character. I mean, you cast John Goodman in that role, knowing he played Dan Connor for years. And like you said, Sully from Monsters, Inc. And um, he was Fred Flintstone. Like <laughs> he was, he was, and also Pacha and Emperor's New Groove, too. Right, right. And and like the Cohen brothers films, he's remind me, he's kind of all over the place, but I always think of the Lebowski role. Yep, I definitely think of him. And also, um, I want to give a shout out to Barton Fink as well. He plays oh, one yeah, of yeah. the he, yeah, he plays one of the main villains in that film. And I actually watched that film for the first time, and that was our first episode main topic movie pick that we did for films for the void. And uh, yeah, I was so taken back. That's one of my favorite aspects of the film. I was so taken back by John Goodman's performance in that film because he is so overwhelming and unpredictable in that film as we slowly reveal layers of his character and personality and stuff like that. Like I was really like, I was really nervous and anxious to to pick a Coen Brothers film right out of the gate because at that time I wasn't really connecting with a lot of their films aside from like a couple, like the big classics, like No Country for Old Men and Fargo. But Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that Eric ended up picking that because it made me want to dive into more Coen Brothers films in general because of, how versatile that they can prove themselves to be as filmmakers. Oh, for sure. I think one of the scariest moments in 10 Cloverfield Lane is when John Goodman shaves his beard. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I never thought someone being clean shaven could be so scary. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, because it's completely against what we expect of him as his character in general, because he really in this film runs the gamut between so many different uh, like personalities. It's only, he almost like feels like he's schizophrenic in some regards because he's all over the place with how he acts to like, sometimes he's very helpful and supportive. Sometimes he's very unpredictable. Sometimes he's very untrusting. And uh, especially with um, John Gallagher Jr.'s character who basically begs to be let in his house. So it's, and it's because like the apocalypse is essentially happening because oh, he, was yeah. a neighbor, he was a neighbor down the road from him for so many years. And he just kind of realizes like, hey, I need to get in here because like he was right about all of this sort of thing. Exactly. I have to I have to go on a little uh, I guess it's a tangent, but I just mm-hmm. well, side note. That's what I want to say. There you go. 2016 was a very interesting year for um, John Gallagher Jr. because he plays Emmett, who's like the ultimate bro in 10 Cloverfield Lane. Mm-hmm. And he plays the, have you seen Hush, Mike Flanagan? I have seen that. I didn't like it, but I definitely, I have seen it for sure. Well, he's the killer. I never realized that. Cause I, I does, isn't he always wearing a mask in that film or uh, he takes it off. He takes it off like halfway through. Interesting. Okay. But that is like, that is polar opposites. And he did it in the same year. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And I think I saw 10 Cloverfield Lane. No, no. I saw Hush first. So when I saw 10 Cloverfield Lane, 
I was like, I don't trust either either of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. It's um because it, it could have gone either way, especially if that was your if that was how you're predispositioned to him as an actor too. It can kind of screw with how you perceive characters in other films based on your reflections of them in other roles prior to that. Right. And, and it, it exactly like I'll go see something with John Goodman now. And I will always think of this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Even though like you, I grew up with like Dan Connors and Sully and Fred Flintstone and all of his family fuzziness, but Nope, it's 10 Cloverfield lane. <laughs> it's, it's just so great to me how a simple act of shaving can put so much dread because i think it's the timing of it he does he saves right after right after he kills emmett and now it's just him and uh michelle mary elizabeth winstead's character like once he's established himself as like there's no more competition that's when he like shaves and he puts on his nice shirt and you can read into that so many different ways. And most of them are scary as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. It really speaks to how versatile of actors they are sort of thing that we can completely like that. We have expect that we have like these sort of already established expectations of who they are as people but we kind of disassociate with that once we get into a film where they go against so against type from what they usually do. Right. I think John Goodman's one of the best character actors out there. Definitely. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I think he can play virtually any character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely helps. Has, oh, no, I was gonna say it definitely helps like when the director has a clear path forward for him, like the Coen brothers or even Dan Trachtenberg, who um, directed this film. And uh, this was his directorial debut, too which is yeah. mind blowing to me because this is such a well-directed film. Like it, you never feel that super, you never feel that claustrophobic in this house, even with the film just being three main characters and uh, a voice of the boyfriend who I, I'm not sure who does the voice of, of that person at the beginning of the film. When, uh, when Michelle decides to leave her boyfriend and uh, go off somewhere else sort of thing, that's when the, um, this invasion starts to happen and there's something going on that they're just not aware of. But uh, yeah, it's just such a well-directed movie. And I think that's what makes it stand out more than anything. For sure. The voice that she breaks up with in the beginning, that's mm-hmm. uh, Bradley Cooper. Oh, is it? Okay. You know, what's funny. Yeah. I always assumed that it was some sort of a bigger actor like that, but I never looked up who it was. That's really interesting to know that though. Now, now I need to watch it again and <laughs> knowing that. <laughs> well, I, for whatever reason, I always thought it was Chris Pine. Oh and yeah. That would also make sense. Yeah. I was, I was about to say Chris Pine, but then I looked it up and it's Bradley Cooper. I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and honestly, I could see how you would think that too, because um, I mean, Chris Pine already has a direct contact with JJ Abrams, the producer. I mean, because he was, he was Captain Kirk in J.J. Uh, Abrams' Star Trek films, so that's totally understandable, too. Something about the director, too, that I want to mention, too, is uh, just for a little background on this film, in case mm-hmm. anyone was curious. So, essentially, this film was based on a spec script called The Cellar, which was one of the most talked about um, unproduced scripts in the year 2012. And uh, it was really highly talked about and was um, trying to get produced for a while, and then that's when J.J. Abrams popped in. The script was written by uh, Josh Campbell and Matt Stuke, Stukin, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh, and then so. uh, Damien Chazelle of Whiplash and La La Land fame, two of my absolute favorite movies of all time, yeah. uh, was actually attached to, well, well rewrote the film and he's, t- and he's, uh, he's credited as a co-screenwriter of the film 
And he was actually attached to direct it at first before, uh, well, after that would have been his, that would have been his first film before La La Land, before uh, Whiplash, but um, Whiplash got the funding needed to produce it to make it a film. And so he had to drop out of directing it, but I would have loved to have seen a universe where um, this film was directed by Chazelle, but that's no short feat because yeah, Dan Trachtenberg did a great job. So I can't even like shake my finger at it because it, it really is a very well-directed film, especially for a debut. Holy hell. We're, we're, we're just talking about killer debuts. Cause like Ari Aster with hereditary Dan Trachtenberg with 10 Cloverfield lane and Damien Chazelle with uh, whiplash. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of talent in this conversation i know yeah now now i feel compelled to mention jordan peele with get out yeah true uh, another film i really love and uh greta gerwig with ladybird <laughs> yeah same love her too that that one's not a horror movie but still mm-hmm. one hell it depends it depends on your relationship debut. with your with your high school hormones if it's a horror movie or not <laughs> i thought you were gonna say depends on your relationship with your mother and i'm like oh we're we're, we're gonna move into psycho okay <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i really like what dan trettenberg did with this film he also worked on the boys i believe he directed the pilot oh cool and that i mean that's probably one of the best shows out right now when you do the pilot you kind of just you determine the style of the show mm-hmm. so he's obviously a super super talented dude i mean people who know me know what i'm about to say I'm super jealous of him. Definitely, There's yeah. A different film called Prey, not the one, not that uh, Dutch film with a lion loose in Amsterdam. <laughs> I'm talking about the upcoming Predator movie. Yeah, I was gonna ask, I was gonna mention that too. That's his uh, next directorial feature length film, uh, and it's his follow up. He hasn't done anything since *Ton Cloverfield Lane*, and I've been wondering for a long time, like over five years at this point, like when is he going to direct something else? Like I've not watched the boys yet. I really want to, it's a show I think I would definitely vibe with, but I was really yeah. interested. Like, where has he been? Like he could easily direct something like Tangle Overfield Lane was a hit. I'm surprised he's, it's taken this long for him to really do it, but I'm so much more excited for prey to come out now. Like I have not been the biggest fan of predator sequels and reboots uh, between predators film from 2010 and the awful Shane black <laughs> film. From 20, yeah. I, 2018, <laughs> like between both of those, I haven't had a lot of hope. But I mean, the fact that it's taken him this long, it makes me think like he has to have gotten this right if they if he's taken this long to make sure that all the to, that everything is finely tuned. To be fair, he did work. Um, he did do some TV. OK, I'm 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 sure it's just a bunch of come close, but no cigar projects, which happen a lot. Oh, really? And I'm sure it's. <laughs> I'm sure it's super disappointing every time. Um, yeah, I can only I can only like, imagine like as a creative professional trying your best to get everything right, everything in order, and then just having the rug pulled out from under you. It's such a vicious business. Right. And it doesn't really get out into the public too often, but then you but then you'll hear like Neil Blomkamp was supposed to do Halo, and then he mm. was supposed to do an alien film, and then he hasn't done either. And it's like, those are heartbreakers, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure Dan Trattenberg has probably the reason why it took so long to do his industry not working in his favor. But he did do um, an episode of Black Mirror, uh, The Boys Pilot. So he's been working. 
Good, good. I was always just a little way. And this is also coming from someone that is act- objectively not a television person in the sense that I try to watch most movies that come out. I never mm. try. I've just completely given up on watching TV, especially dramas. The only full-length drama that I've seen in its entirety, and I wasn't even going to watch this until it just exploded in popularity with Squid Game. Like, that's the only thing hypey, very hypey over the last few years that I've even, like, considered watching because I was so interested in what it was going to bring to the table and why so many people were talking about it. Like I I've skipped so many things. Like I've never watched stranger things. I've never watched. I didn't watch tiger King when it was popular in quarantine, mm-hmm. like so many different things that I just completely avoided because I, I don't know. Like I, I just have a, I just have a bigger connection with movies and I would rather spend more time investing in like single pieces of film than watching, than spending 10 hours on a TV show where I'm like, Oh, okay. That was okay. But, and then, I at least feel better if I watch a bad movie where I'm like, okay, it was only an hour and a half of my life where if I watch a bad TV show, I'm like, that was awful. And I wasted 12 hours of my life (laughs) sort of thing. That's kind of my rationale, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like me, it's like, why watch one TV show when I can watch five movies? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of like, I, I do that all the time while I'm working. I'll just have a movie on in the background so I can just kind of, especially like rewatches. I do that a lot. I just rewatched Disturbia because yeah. we're doing a rear window discussion uh, next week when we talk about it for Void. And oh, cool. uh, yeah, it was just, it, it's nice just having a movie on in the background instead of like a full length TV show that I've never seen before where there's so many like subtle little nuances that I have to pay attention to at all times to make sure everything is clicking right. <laughs> I completely understand. But yeah, I'm so jealous of Dan Trattenberg because like he's living out my my personal filmmaker dreams. Uh, <laughs> Predator is like, my franchise that I really want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, not my friend, like everyone has like franchises are for everyone, but that is like the goal franchise. And as far as like my filmmaking aspirations is predator. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah. I keep telling people I got so many pitches. I have like three, but, um, <laughs> but I got ideas, you know, I think with predator, there's so many ways you can play in that playground. And I love the concept for prey. And I think that's absolutely one of the right, like one of the most right ways you can go. But I have to admit, I'm a little jelly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's also really funny too, especially for some, for that to be his next thing after waiting like six years to direct another feature film specifically for like to go right for your bread and butter sort of thing, right? The thing that you've been thinking about off the bat sort of thing like for so long and then to see someone come out of the woodwork specifically for that makes it all the more interesting that's why i hope it's great i hope it's an awesome awesome film bumps me out it's going to hulu and not getting shown i hope it gets shown in theaters in some capacity if it's especially if it's great like um i i hope that because i don't think hulu's ever really done that I know Netflix does that. Prime does that. Uh, right. Both of them do it. But Hulu's never really shown their movies in theater. Apple TV. That was the other one because they just showed Cha Cha Real Smooth in theaters. But... Oh, cool. Yep. Yep. I got to start a Twitter petition. A Twitter titian. Twitition. Twitition. Yeah. That we're we're oh, starting it. I just pulled that out out of no out of nothing. <laughs> I love it. I, I love it. And it's going to happen. We're going to at least a week. At least a limited screen, like time showing, because it's. I'm sorry, Predator is a big screen franchise. Yeah, for sure. And like, I know, and it's not. I I don't know. Like, late summer is always very tricky for new films in general, too. I feel like there's so many films in the. Um, I don't know, just in streaming in general, especially in the late summer, 
where uh, I don't know, like a lot of the blockbusters this year have been just hanging on for dear life. Like Top Gun Maverick's probably going to be in theaters throughout the end of August because people are just seeing it in droves. It's a great movie. Right. I loved Top Gun Maverick. But, oh, yeah. uh, Agreed. but especially when it comes to like these big multiplex theaters, like my local theater has, I think, 19 screens. And uh, yeah, you can't, they pick indies, all they pick out indies all the time to show them. So yeah, I hope that Prey gets a little bit of a shot in theaters in some regard, even if it's just like a 1, thousand, 1500 screens, like I'd like the opportunity to see it in a theater if I can. And like Hulu's owned by Disney, 20th Century Fox is owned by Disney. Yeah. Disney's not lacking for money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge Star Wars fan, so they have plenty of my money. Oh, um, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, don't be stingy. Put that. Put that Predator movie on the big screen where it belongs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Especially sure. since it's not a series. Like, I, I get not putting The Mandalorian or The Book of Boba Fett or Obi-Wan. Those are made for the small screen. Yeah, this for is sure. A movie. Yeah. Like even the little bits of Mandalorian that I've watched, it definitely is like kind of a smaller scale production. Like they're not, pu they're putting in money to make sure that it looks good and it looks like Star Wars. But at the same time, it's not like, you're they're going for like a big cinematic thing a lot of these are like very fixed fixed sets where they're having like very small conversations they're not always going to a bunch of different places episode by episode so i mean it, it makes sense to yeah it makes sense to put prey in a the theater because there's so much going on especially i can tell just from the trailer that there's so much going on right and this might be it might end up being the best predator movie I'm curious if it'll beat the first one. And I like the first one. Uh, the first one I watched for the first time last year. And I actually saw the, the, um, the two really bad uh, reboots before I actually saw the original. <laughs> and I liked the original because especially the second half where it gets so where it's a lot more quiet. Uh, the first film, the first half of Predator I, is like this big machismo action film. And then the second half, it almost feels like aliens, like James Cameron's aliens a little bit. It almost feels like it's yeah. very slow and methodical. And I was like, damn, I was not expecting this. I thought the first half was all that this movie was going to provide. And then the second half, hit, I was like, damn, this is actually kind of subtle. Like, I kind of vibe with this. This is cool. Oh, it's a top 10 film for me. Like, mm -hmm. I absolutely adore that film. But just the concept of Prey is so good. I'm not saying it's going to be better. I'm just saying it's the only one that has a shot. I, no, definitely. I have a lot of hope for it. I already wrote it down as one that I want to cover as a new release for Films for the Void. Um, it comes out the same weekend as Bullet Train, which I'm going to go see for sure. Oh, uh, I want to see that too. Yeah, there's actually a lot. Let me see if I can find it. There's a ton of stuff coming to theaters on August 5th. Um, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies comes out that day. Uh, they, oh, shit. them. Yeah, they them also comes out that day. I think they them is going to Hulu, if I'm not mistaken. But I, yeah, tons of stuff is coming out August 5th. I thought it was called they slash them. Oh, it is. I just said they I just said they them. Oh, <laughs> well, the reason why I well, I thought it was a pun, like because it's like they them is like he, her or she. Yeah, or, someone's um, pronouns. Are, yeah. Yeah. Pro, that's what I'm looking for. Pronouns. But then because of the slash is so prominent. It's like, well, it's a slasher movie. Mm -hmm. They slash them. I actually don't know because I have I've purposely not looked into anything. It's coming to Peacock, by the way. I don't know if it's going to be in theaters or not, but that's the idea. And uh, yeah, I had a feeling it was going to be some sort of political slant in some way where it's going to be commenting. It's weird, too, because bodies, bodies, bodies also feels like it's commenting on Gen Z, like slang and culture and stuff like that, like TikTok sort of thing, like TikTok sort of culture as well. So I. Yeah. 
I, I it's so weird that both of those movies are coming out because I feel like they're kind of blending into each other. I'm excited for both. I'm going to watch both. I know my uh, co-host Eric is looking forward to both of those movies and is planning on seeing them both the day they come out. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of um, yeah, there's a lot of potential for both of those films as both as horror films and as satires. If And, and that's the thing. Yeah. I don't even know if that's what they them is going for. I just know body. It looks like bodies, bodies, bodies is going for that. Well, I remember I remember um, I heard about them. But for whatever reason, I said they slash them out loud. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, it's a fucking pun. I'm seeing this movie. <laughs> I don't know anything else about. I don't know what the movie is. <laughs> yeah, I saw I, I did watch the trailer and I think Kevin Bacon's in it, but I don't remember much else. Yep, he's in that. it. I'm on Wikipedia right now. Yeah, he's in it. Um, I can read the plot to you unless you want to go in completely blind. Honestly. I'm so blinded by prey right now. You can tell it to me and then I, I'll forget. <laughs> okay. Cause I'll be for anyone right, that's curious right prey. for anyone that's curious. Uh, yeah. They, them, the premise of the film, the film is described as a queer empowerment story set at a gay conversion camp. So it makes me think that it's going to be some sort of a political um, commentary or satire in some regard. So it, with, it's just so funny that that embodies is coming out are coming out the same day that they're both kind of going for very similar things, but different directions. That's why I'm so excited to talk about both of those on the same episode of Void, because I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of opportunity for really interesting discussion on both of them. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's really cool. And I'm very excited, although I have to admit, I'm probably going to see those films the second weekend they're out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to be too busy watching Prey nine times. <laughs> <laughs> It's also funny because um, that episode is going to be very tricky because that avoid because Eric is leaving. So all so the four movies we're going to cover for that episode are Bullet Train, Bodies, 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 They, Them and Prey, all of which come out on August 5th. And we're going to record on August 5th because Eric is leaving to go to Scotland for two weeks. So we have to see all four of those movies within a 24 hour period. I'm going to try and see all four in a 24 hour period and take good notes. Um, but that episode is going to be so interesting because I'm definitely going to see Bodies and uh, and Bullet Train in a theater. And then the other two, I'm just going to try and squeeze in during work. And uh, yeah, that's, oh my God, that's going to be such a crazy episode. But I'm so excited because I'm legit excited for all four of those movies. It's going to be, it's going to be great. And people are getting their money's worth on this episode. They came here for 10 Cloverfield Lane and they're getting just what's new in horror we're getting we talked about slashers and heredity like i love this so far <laughs> 10 cloverfield um, lane more like 10 different uh, tangents <laughs> <laughs> um all the films that live on 10 cloverfield lane <laughs> exactly exactly yeah they're all Predator, like corner from each other yeah predator's neighbor is neighbors with jason Voorhees. lives across the street from tony collette um <laughs> yeah <laughs> who's still mad she didn't get her oscar as am i as we all should be, but to kind of tie Prey, um, to bring it to Dan Trattenberg, tie it to 10 Cloverfield Lane and Prey, 10 Cloverfield Lane is PG-13. Yeah, and, and it, it doesn't really feel, uh, I don't know, I, I never really felt, because I don't know, like, maybe it's because I just watched this, rewatched Disturbia for the first time today, mm -hmm. Um, but oh my god, that movie is so aggressively vanilla and soft core in PG-13. <laughs> like I was so bored out of my mind because it's so unengaging. Like I, I had not watched that movie in 15 years. Um, and I, I really, I kind of 
I remembered seeing it in a theater and I thought it was good and I liked it. And then, oh my God, something happened in the last 15 years. Like I, nothing about it worked for me at all. I was just so unengaged. But this film like is legitimately terrifying and suspenseful in a lot of ways. It never feels like it's, it never feels PG-13. It never feels like it's using its rating as a crutch. It always feels like it's on to the next thing. It knows what it's doing and it trusts its own instincts. Well, there are great PG-13 horror films that mm-hmm. don't use a rate its rating as a crutch. They use its rating as a as like a creative barrier. Like, oh, I can't show blood. So I'm gonna have to be super creative. And a lot of these films, not a lot, but um a good amount of these films are better for it. So this one, obviously, I like to think of the ring as mm-hmm. peak PG 13 horror. Yep. I would also agree with that. I, that's another one I watched very recently. I missed that in theaters because I was only like 11 when it came out. But yeah, that's sure. another film that I very much agree with you. Like, yeah, that movie definitely hits home in a big way and makes an impact with what it's with what its source material gives it. Um, another film that I want to shout out is Drag Me to Hell by Sam Raimi. Holy shit. Yes. Like that is more intense than a lot of R-rated horror films in some regards. And that talk about create <laughs> talk about creative use of getting around the rating itself, because yeah, that movie uses like vomit in such unique ways mm-hmm. and like very um interesting practical effects that make it feel more real. And uh, yeah, I can't I can't give that movie enough credit. It's not perfect, but my God, it's so effective in that regard. And my like, yeah, like good luck. Have fun seeing that when you're 13 years old and yeah. that's your first <laughs> PG-13 movie. <laughs> and but the thing is, like the best PG-13 horror um is far scarier because of the limits. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. if you could see, like if Gore Verbinski could show you everything in the ring, I don't think it hits as well. But when you're watching the ring, it's not like, oh, I'm watching a PG-13 horror movie for kiddies. It's like, oh, this movie's <laughs> fucking scary. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there it's um, it just blows my mind how ma- how much how much some directors are able to get out of their source material more than anything. And like you said, find creative ways to showcase what they're able to do. And a lot of times you can like a like a great filmmaker can use less to their benefit and obviously the big example is steven spielberg and jaws with the less is more approach but like texas chainsaw massacre that first one Mm -hmm. (laughs) people think it's like the goriest scariest like what but it's just gritty and it's all in it's just tense and gnarly i love it but it ain't showing you much it's all implied and done through creative what's the word creative film creative craft so when leatherface like sticks a girl on a meat hook they don't actually show it but so many people remember seeing it happen because they're that filmmaking so strong that their mind played tricks on them yeah it's very much a case of um what you i don't know like what you can perceive from everything when from the terror of being chased by him and being caught by him and then being placed on that hook like because I feel like everyone has had something puncture them in some way in their life where they can relate to that feeling even if it's not as intense as being placed on a meat hook they can at least understand and empathize with the with the piercing of itself because even if you've like um I don't know you can still relate to that like if you've been pricked with a safety pin, for example, like, and have it go into your skin and sometimes into your flesh. Um, 
it kind of goes back to that visceral feeling of experiencing it yourself. It's funny. I just talked about that on, I think it was on podcast the 13th with Jeff, where it's so funny. Cause like whenever I talk to anyone about the first Jackass movie specifically, it's not the, the biggest, like most grandiose stunts that get under people's skin in the first movie. The most, the, the one thing that everyone scream is squeamish about and can't watch is when they're taking those manila envelopes in that hotel room and slicing them between the webbings of their fingers and their toes because everyone at some point has done that accidentally and they know what that feeling is like. And, the, and it's so, it's such a minor little thing that I, I, it blows my mind that people can relate to so hard. It's such a universal experience that it makes it that much more scary. Yeah, and just like the filmmaking to do that is like so visceral that you feel, you know, like you don't have to see it, but your mind knows. And then when you're you're reflecting, you just see it. And it's so good, that feeling. And um, you mentioned Sam Raimi with Drag Me to Hell a little earlier. I think he all I think he did the same thing with the new Doctor Strange movie, because I don't know if you were on Twitter after that movie came out, but a bunch of people were like, that was the most violent movie I've ever seen. Put Sam Raimi in jail. My kids will never recover. God, touch grass. Like that movie's not yeah. made for children. Like there's a reason it's PG-13. It's like, like parents need to do the research before they like show their kids anything and everything. Like, come on. Like what a, but, like, what a goofy but, ass. But you know what I mean? But <laughs> yeah. But the filmmaking was so effective that they genuinely thought they saw gore. Where there's oh, no yeah. When really, movie. yeah, it's it's it seemed very appropriate. Like, imagine if they saw Drag Me to Hell, which is the same rating. Like, what would they yeah. like? What would they say? Like, good Lord, they would have thought like if they saw the just saw the exorcist or something. Right. And it's just like a like like I can empathize a little bit because horror is not for everybody. As, yeah. a hu- as a huge horror fan, you have to be willing to admit that. And Marvel is supposed to be for everybody. So when they decide to do something horror, it ain't going to work for everyone. And that's okay. Oh, um, sure. Yeah. But it's just so funny to me that there are actually people out there being like, oh, this is this is our territory. This should be rated R. And I'm like, do you, did you not see Jurassic World? Yeah, <laughs> A movie exactly. infinitely more violent. And mm-hmm. I saw four-year-old and four and five-year-olds going to go see Jurassic World, ooh, dinosaurs. And then like the whole uh, dropping the girl, the uh, babysitter into the Mosasaur tank, getting just annihilated by pteranodons until the Mosasaur is just like. Yeah, that's one of the best parts of the movie, in my opinion. And it's also like one of the most violent things I've ever seen, like rated (laughs) R, rated X, whatever. It's just supremely violent. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And like, I guess I have a little less sympathy for especially parents in that regard, because mm-hmm. one, they're your kids. You should know them and have a good enough relationship with them if you're going to take them to a movie to know what their limits are. And uh, right. there, and also there is no shortage of resources online to check like what's in a movie you're going to see. So if it's really that big of a concern to you, you should be doing the research. You should be going to kidsinmind.com and look at the ratings to see, okay, you know what? This doesn't seem like something like my kids should probably see when they're six years old, maybe in like eight or nine, or maybe they'll go see it at a friend's sleepover or something. I don't know. I, I think there's a plethora of resources available for parents at this point to be able to make that judgment call for themselves. Right. And like, I, I, 
I just remember when a bunch of parents took their kids to go see Deadpool because they just assumed superhero <laughs> movie. Yeah. Talk, yeah. Talk <laughs> about another one that like that's another one that I always find so funny where like all these like 13 year olds are like, we want to see Deadpool as well. It's like, OK, either go sneak into it like people like kids did when they, when the Matrix was in theaters or South Park, the South Park movie was in theaters or right. wait. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know the reason that Deadpool was made in general was to show that there was an interest in R-rated superhero movies. Like we're not going to dumb it down just so people can like have like <laughs> can have their cake and eat it too. No, there's a reason that they made it this very hard R sort of film. That's very, that's not accessible to every audience. And I don't know, I stand by that film like that needed to be rated R. <laughs> <laughs> like Disney, I know you're listening. <laughs> oh yeah i'm, I'm sure they're keep, listening right now <laughs> you have to keep deadpool rated r you have to keep punisher rated r and yep. you have to keep predator rated r which it turns out you guys are doing um trettenberg said in june of this year uh, so recently that the film would be rated r good pray good. would and that's my transition back to Trattenberg. Um, <laughs> that was a really fun tangent into ratings. I I enjoyed that a lot, but I gotta I gotta bring it back to Ten Cloverfield Lane eventually. It's fine. You know what? It's you, we we used Ten Cloverfield Lane as a means of of talking about other things regarding the film. It doesn't always have to be about the film itself. So I'm fine exactly. with whatever direction this conversation was gonna go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I love doing it that way. I I woke up this morning and I'm like, Predator's coming up. I, I just know it in my heart that, <laughs> <laughs> that it's just going to come. And so I'm like, okay, cool. It came up organically. I didn't force it. So it will yeah, make I'm, the episode. It'll make the episode description all the more interesting when you put this on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I make the graphic, I'm going to have to hide a little Predator somewhere. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that'd be fun or like you put everything we talk about on the thumbnail for this but then 10 cloverfield lane is just a little jpeg in the corner <laughs> see we talked about it <laughs> yeah it was that it gets the title <laughs> it was there it's like we talked about it okay <laughs> right so now on to the birds of prey portion of the podcast no i'm kidding um, <laughs> exactly I, I enjoyed that movie i didn't mean to make it a joke but we cannot go into the DC universe. I already went into the Marvel universe. I have, this is a horror podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to ask you the, the titular question of the podcast, mm -hmm. if you will. If you were trapped in a basement with John Goodman, would you die? You know, I have to think about it a little bit because I feel like this movie is actually pretty airtight in how Michelle goes about finding different ways to escape the situation. And she is placed with like very good, convenient means of like, OK, I have an opportunity to escape here, but I don't want to escape. Like when she goes when she smashes John Goodman in the head of that bottle during dinner and she makes a match to go upstairs. And she um, encounters that woman that's like banging on the door, trying to get in sort of thing. And it looks like she got infected by something, whether it's an airborne illness or she touched something. We don't know yet yeah. if it's an airborne, like we said, we don't know if it's an airborne illness or zombies or like animals being infected. We don't know. We just know that something went wrong and she has clear proof in front of her. If that's the case, I don't, I probably would I'm going to say I would probably die because I feel like I'm a little less intuitive when it comes to circumstances like that. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I would probably side more with John Goodman as a person in his house. And I would be very, I'd be more appreciative, I guess, because of everything going on, despite everything that, <laughs> that he's done and how he's like manipulated and like how it's slowly revealed what kind of a person he really is and that they need to get out of this house. So yeah, it's, um, I would say that I would probably die in the sense that I feel like I would be more trusting than um, other people would be. And I think that's kind of a fault of mine because I'm a very, I feel like I'm very nice and very trusting. So I'm assuming I would die, but uh, I would hope I'm wrong. <laughs> what, do we, what do you think? Would you survive? Oh, no, no. I, I never survive any of these. I just know it. <laughs> I, 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 I watch enough of these films to know, well, I ain't going far. <laughs> I have to bring up the fact that this movie hits a lot differently after 2020. Oh my gosh, yes. It's it's like when everyone was going uh, back in quarantine, they were going back to Steven, Sod- um, Steven Soderbergh's 2012 film Contagion, which I have yeah. not, I didn't rewatch. I ended up not rewatching around that time because I was just so freaked out by the world in general that I wasn't sh- sure how to feel. But it was, um yeah, it was very, it's very understandable that people would be on edge, especially at that time because they would not know how to deal with everything. Well, it's like it's isolation, like it's just the isolation of it. So I think uh, John Carpenter's The Thing is another one that hit differently, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's just like this paranoia that especially in 2020, when everyone was locked up and we didn't have the vaccines and we didn't have um, we didn't know masking would work at this time. And I guess people don't think they work or whatever. We're past that now, I guess. I have no clue. I, yeah. I mean, a pandemic's, still, a pandemic's still out there, but you wouldn't know it. Anyways, that's not the point. Sure. The point is in 2020, there was so much uncertainty. We really mm-hmm. didn't know anything. And I think 10 Cloverfield Lane, retroactively, there's that paranoia. And especially with the airborne alien disease, yeah, because we genuinely don't know yeah. what caused that at this point. The only thing that we kind of gather from the 10 minute climax at the end, which I know a lot of people have varying opinions on or every, a lot of people say that that's when the movie becomes a Cloverfield movie. And that's the worst part yeah. of the film. And I, I'm in agreement on that, where the only thing we really gather is that like these green fart clouds are coming from the alien hubs at a certain point. And then um, then Michelle, um, Michelle finds out that the best way to do it is um, to, um, I don't know, to trick the alien hub into um into picking up that car and then it takes the car and it explodes in some capacity like that's what i gathered from it was like it's like the end of independence day where that's how you find out that that's how you take down the aliens because people don't know what to do or how to stop them but now they know how because someone sacrificed themselves so i think that's what it makes the movie a cloverfield movie it obviously is not the best part of the film i get more from that suspenseful tension and like how minimal everything is when it comes to um, like the relationship between Michelle, John Goodman and, and Emmett. So um, yeah, I think that's kind of like my overall thoughts on the film itself. I, I really enjoyed the ending, but I also think it's like a 10 out of 10 movie. Um, and oh, I, like sure. al- yeah. I like aliens. So I'm, I'm biased in that regard. If you're going to put mm-hmm. an alien in your movie, that's like two extra stars for me most of the time um <laughs> yeah but at the same time my only criticism of the film for me personally is i think that alien fight at the end drags like i think it goes on a bit too long 
I would argue that it's necessary. It's a really cool cap to Michelle's journey because she starts as someone who just runs away and she's put in a position where flight is not an option. She can only fight. It's like that TikTok where it's like, I'm fight or flight, but I'm a flightless bird. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So um, I, uh, it does yeah. kind of, it does definitely do a good job of servicing her character arc because I, it, it's weird because um, it seemed like at the beginning of the film, she was actually thinking about turning around and coming back, but that's when she gets hit by John Goodman's truck and taken back to right, her uh, when she gets taken back. And then she has that really, when she's talking to Emmett, she has that really great moment where she's talking about like her past and how she wanted to stop like an abusive dad from hitting his kid or something, but she couldn't and she did nothing. And then at the end of the movie, she like turns towards the fight. That's why I like the, her bout with the alien at the end, but it feels like it's a half hour and it does not need to be that long. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. It it's crazy too because that also kind of ties that her um connection to her arc as well kind of ties into when she hears that distress call on the radio when she escapes in that in that truck where she has that option to go towards Houston where she was already heading or go to New Orleans or head towards New Orleans and help those because they need help fighting the fight and she decides yeah. to go to New Orleans and that's when we get that really cool shot of the alien hub in the sky and that's the last shot of the film. And I if you ask me that's how I would solve that issue with the climax is that I would cut the climax and do something a little bit differently where the only connection to Cloverfield is the alien in the sky in the hub, like right before the credits cut that I thought was a really cool connection to the source material. And that's all you really needed. Honestly, I think that's all you really needed necessarily. And that's enough and that you could keep this, you could keep the seller script virtually the same. Oh, I agree with keeping the seller script the same. I would just have a little bit of that alien fight. Just as an audience, we know, because if you don't see her figuring out how to beat an alien, if she like heads towards that fight, I think the first thought would be like, what the fuck are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I guess I took a little it more. Bit. Yeah, I would keep a little bit, maybe make it like the alien is out in the open and it's like a one on one fight with the alien itself or something where it kind of right. ties back into the tone of the film where they were what they were establishing with this like very minimal set and everything where maybe it's just like a one-on-one sort of thing. And she has to overcome it and overcome it herself instead of, um, instead of like this giant big hub sort of thing, or maybe like it, sh- it starts as that. And then it turns to the hub or something like that. I don't know. I think there's something there. I think with a little bit of tweaking yeah. or a couple of rewrites, this could have been like a really perfect film in my mind, but as is like, I would give it like, an eight out of 10 leaning a nine. If the, if the shoehorned Cloverfield stuff wasn't in there, but it's nothing to, sh- it's nothing to be ashamed of at all. It is a film that I very much like and respect. And uh, yeah, I still love it. I've seen it like five or six times in my life. And since it came out in 2016 and yeah, I think it's still very awesome. Oh, I, 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 I get that for sure. Um, me personally, I would just cut a few minutes out of the climax and I think it's perfect. Yeah, same. I think there's something there. I, I think there's an opportunity to make it a stronger film. So maybe, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, um, this has been a lot of fun. I love talking about John Goodman and Predator and, mm-hmm. and our favorite slasher films and the PG-13 rating. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on, Austin. This was so much fun. I'm glad we were able to cover so much ground. Where can people find you in your podcast um, if they liked listening to your voice? 
Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, you can find us um uh, uh on Twitter spot on Twitter at films underscore void. The podcast is available wherever you stream podcasts. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. It's on uh over Overcast and Stitcher and we're just wherever you get podcasts, you can find it. And uh yeah, and uh yeah, we're on Twitter at films underscore void, and you can follow me on Twitter at I got to fever man. Awesome. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed this. I had so much fun. And yeah, I had a blast. Thank yeah, thank you for having me, Austin. This was a ton of fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I am so sorry for the delay, but more than 20 weekly episodes without a hiccup as someone who is brand new to podcasting, I think it was bound to happen. I'm honestly surprised it hasn't happened sooner. So go me. In my defense, I had a lot going on recently. I was in Montana for a wedding, which was beautiful, both the wedding and the state. I had some personal things come up, but luckily everything is okay now, so we're good. Something fun is I was able to go to the premiere of Crow to support my friend and previous podcast guest, Justin Maine. Crow will be up on YouTube this coming Monday, and I think everyone listening should check it out. It really is a showcase for all the great film talent in Michigan. Thanks again for Landon for being awesome and joining me and talking about 10 Cloverfield Lane amongst a bunch of other topics. Don't forget to check out Films for the Void. It's a really great podcast. I listen to it at work and um, Landon's really cool to listen to about movies. As always, you can find the show's social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Would You Die Show. You can find the Would You Die YouTube show on the Three Wise Men Media YouTube channel, where you can also find professional wrestling, trailer reviews, and much, much more. The music you hear in the beginning and end of each episode is composed by my friend, Josie Palmer. Next week is episode 25 of the podcast, and it's a big one. We are finally talking A Nightmare on Elm Street with literally the best person you can talk Freddy with. You guys are going to love it. Until then, I'm Austin Torres. Try not to die.